The following episode of Annals on Call is brought to you by Annals of Internal Medicine. For more episodes and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org slash oncall. For decreasing racial disparities, but also for not over or under treating people. You gotta get the risk estimate right when guidelines are now using the risk factor. We need to have the most current data to predict what our risk is today because our risk with exact same numbers would have been different in 1980. So therefore, data that was collected in 1980 aren't going to predict as well my current risk. Welcome to Annals on Call, a podcast based upon articles from the Annals of Internal Medicine in which we discuss the implications of the article for you, the listener. This is Dr. Bob Centaur. I'm Professor Emeritus at the University of Alabama at Birmingham and former chair of the Board of Regents for the American College of Physicians. In this podcast, we're discussing an article titled Clinical Implications of the Revised Pool Cohort Equations for Estimating Atherosclerotic Cardiovascular Disease Risk. Our guest for this podcast is Dr. Rod Hayward, who's a professor in the Department of Internal Medicine and the Department of Health Management and Policy at the University of Michigan. He's also the director of the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation Clinical Scholars Program. He's a brilliant researcher and a wonderful guest and a co-author of this paper. Rob, thank you very much for agreeing to discuss this article that you were part of the author group. The article is Clinical Implications of Revised Pool Cohort Equations for Estimating Atherosclerotic Cardiovascular Disease Risk. It's a fairly intimidating title, but I found it very personally delightful to understand, even though it took a while. And the reason is, I'm of the age where the predictive models for cardiovascular risk make a difference in what kind of primary prevention I might get. Just to share my own data, I'm 69. I'm obviously a male. I have a total cholesterol of 187. I actually have an HDL of 75, a systolic blood pressure of 124, and a diastolic of 78. I went to the calculator the American Heart Association, American College of Cardiology put together, and I really didn't understand that calculator too well until I read the article that you're a co-author on, and I have a 12.9% risk which suggests that I should be on a statin. I didn't think I needed to be on a statin. I thought I was in pretty good shape. And after reading your article, and after we'll discuss it, I think people will understand why, a new calculator came up and my risk fell down to 7.2%. That would suggest I don't need to be on a statin and I don't need to be on aspirin and that my blood pressure was superb. Now, why did I get different answers in these two calculators? So that's what we're going to explore over the next period of time. The first question I have for you, as I thought about it, was why did you look at the difference between the model that was being proposed and is being used by a lot of physicians and even think about looking at a new model? Yeah, there are several reasons. One is when the model first came out, there was others who noted that when you look at some modern cohorts, that the rates seemed high. Our personal interest had a lot to do with getting the estimate for African Americans correct, um, related to other work. That work that we had done seven, eight years ago showed that we were paying too much attention to cholesterol or blood pressure in isolation and not enough about risk. 
and this led to over-treating some people and under-treating others. This was particularly important for African Americans, poor individuals, and those under a lot of stress because their risk is even higher than estimated by traditional risk factors. So once risk became important, it was important to get the risk calculations right. And Sanjay Basu, colleague at Stanford, and I were talking about the importance of calculators, including race or at least social determinants of health. And he noticed that when he put the same attributes other than race in, he would get these wildly different things. I have noted this not as a clinician, but as a researcher at the ratio between whites and blacks on the pooled cohort equations from 2013 were wildly off. We have some people being 80% lower than a white if they're black and others having 500% higher risk. These were just infeasible. And then we talked to a third colleague, Jeremy Sussman, who had looked at the development of these equations in detail and had several other statistical. So this is a story of why networking and bouncing ideas are important. And so we had finished a paper showing how important getting race estimates is important for decreasing racial disparities. African-Americans die and get heart attacks at higher rates. We are waiting too long to treat them. And so Sanjay Basu gathered all of these cohorts together, a mammoth amount of work, and then a brilliant graduate student, Stephen Yablowski at Stanford, did all the heavy work of redoing the analysis. So, so we just felt this was important both for decreasing racial disparities but also for not over or under treating people. You gotta get the risk estimate right when guidelines are now using risk factors. So that really answers the question of how you got into this. Maybe you could explain to me and to the listeners what the pooled cohort estimate that they did in 2013, what cohorts did they use and why you thought that was a problem and how did your cohorts differ and what was the idea behind that? Yeah, first of all, the job done by the original team developing the original calculator was really impressive. It used methods that were standard at the time and the data sets that were available. And they had not anticipated going into the guidelines that risk was going to be so important. So they worked very hard over a short period of time, and they used the large cohort studies that were available. So these are very large cohort studies. They pooled them together. They used standard statistical methods to develop the equations and then published it along with guidelines. And they used state-of-the-art methods then, and they used the available data that they had. And what was different about the data they had and the data you had? We had a major concern that using older data was problematic because, in part, morbidity and mortality for coronary artery disease and strokes has decreased because of treatment, but it's also decreased for other reasons that we don't understand. It's going down faster than expected based upon how much blood pressure, statins, and aspirin would be expected to do. So we are very concerned about old data. So we did two things. We updated all the cohorts that could be updated with more recent information. 
we excluded the Framingham Heart Study, which had some very old data before 1970. And we added two newer cohorts, the Jacksonville Heart Study and MESA, which are much more modern cohorts with all the data being done in the current century. So we updated it with newer data. So this is interesting in terms of risk prediction for cardiovascular events. What you're telling me is that we need to have the most current data to predict what our risk is today because our risk with exact same numbers would have been different in 1980. So therefore, data that was collected in 1980 aren't going to predict as well my current risk. Yeah, I think a lot of clinicians like us who spend all our time thinking about prediction models and how things change over time, but I think clinicians have not been adequately informed that many of the risk prediction tools like Framingham risk prediction tools are very old from another era. Treatments were different and also diet, exercise, weight, a lot of things were different. What it meant to be a diabetic was different. So, yeah, I think that more recent data is important. We don't know how recent it needs to be. We know right now that the last 10 years, it's much better than going further Do these need to be updated every three years or would every 10 years be enough is something we don't know yet and are really looking at carefully here. And we need larger data sets to look at that. But we think that probably in the modern world of data, we should be able to update these every five years, and that should be more than enough. Well, that's really interesting. So let's get down to what you actually did. As I read from your article, you used the following predictors to develop the new models, age, gender, black race, current tobacco smoking, total and HDL, cholesterol, treated or untreated systolic blood pressure, and diabetes. Yes, and all of those are traditional risk factors with the exception of race. We think race or a better measure of social determinant of health should definitely be included. But the rest are the same sort of things you would find in the Framingham risk score. And just for my own personal interest, although I think it'll be interesting to most clinicians, Family history is not included here. And I remember when we first started talking about cholesterol, one of the things you looked at was premature coronary artery disease. Why is that not included in these prediction models? Yeah, and that's very important. Two known risk factors that we wished we had consistent data on was family history and estimated GFR. Those are both known to be important. It's not measured reliably in a lot of the studies or consistently. And this raises an overall general point. These risk calculators, clinicians should think of as getting them in the ballpark. The clinician often has rich additional data on the patient. How much do they exercise? Did they used to have really, really bad blood pressure? <laughs> Mm-hmm. And now it's better at history of wear and tear be an issue. How bad is their family history? And by the way, it's very different if you have three close relatives who had a heart attack before age 60 versus you had relatives who had heart attacks after age 75. If the family history is a more graded, continuous risk factor as we think of. Clinicians will know that, and that should affect them saying, yes, this person's calculated risk is 7%, but they have a lot of additional family history, and I need to weight that. 
or this person's risk is 10%, but they're a marathon runner who leads a very good life in lifestyles. Those have impacts, and we need to think of that. One other thing that we often don't think about is mental health. People that suffer from depression repeatedly often have higher cardiovascular risk. And in fact, any chronic social stress appears to increase cardiovascular disease risk. These are things that still need for good decision makers. The tools should not make the decision. Clinicians doing that, both knowing the patient in terms of other information and their preferences, is essential when somebody is close to a cut point. Do not let the tool or the cut point make decisions. Well, that's great. We'll Their talk about that again in just a few minutes. Let's talk about what I consider the brilliance of this article, and that is how you did the validation, why validation is so important, and what the heck do you mean by validation? Validation has two particular meanings. One is internal validation. That means if you use the same data source, how much have you gone wrong? by overfitting the model, right? That you have used this and your model is wrong because you tried to find too much uh, pattern and haven't appreciated the amount of noise. Um, So we talk about that as statistical aspects of overfitting. Validation also has external validation and that external can be to different populations and also be to different time periods. So when we use validation, we're talking about different types of validation, and we found both to be a problem. Overfitting of the model, in which that didn't try to find too much pattern and didn't appreciate how much of it was just noise, and but also time was very important. If you built models on older data and tried to validate it on newer. The other thing I'd say is validation for prediction models have two distinct components that are both very important. But discrimination is how much we correctly estimate higher and lower risk individuals. We're sort of risk stratifying that. But calibration is how much would your estimate for an individual is right on the money, correct? You don't systematically over or underestimate. So you can have a tool that discriminates well by rank order. That rank order is correct, but you're systematically overestimating people by 20%. And indeed, that's one of our findings, that the average overestimate of the original risk tool was about 20% higher. But within that, there are people like yourself who were overestimated almost a hundredfold. And there are people that were actually underestimated their risk. And so our approach could improve both of those, under and over. So let's see if I have this right. The idea of validation is to test the model and see if it works. And if I read the article right, you did two types of validation. First, you validated all the data that you had held out. And maybe you could talk about how you took part of the data to develop the model and the other part of the data to make sure it worked. And then you did a very interesting thing. You looked at data from the 20th century and validated against that. And then you looked at data from the 21st century and validated against that. I think you've explained why that's important, but maybe you could talk about that a bit. We did our validation by withholding a stratified random sample of 20% of the data. That data's only purpose was to test the equation. On that 80% of the data randomly selected, 
we use different techniques. We would say, okay, what if we just update the data set? So the only change we make is we use the same statistical techniques as was used originally, state of the art at the time, but we use more current data. And we found that helped a little, but surprisingly little. We still had calibration problems, and we still had the ratio of risk for African Americans and whites was still off in unreasonable ways. We found that if you needed to get good validation, you needed to use more recent data and more modern statistical approaches. So the statistical approaches and the updating were both important. And the latter, the statistical approaches are much more important for researchers. The more recent data is important for both researchers and clinicians. You don't want a tool that's old. There's also contextual issues. The idea that different populations have different risks. And that's another thing clinicians should be aware of, is that often the discrimination the risk that a smoker has this much higher risk, blood pressure has this effect, generalize well. But calibration, the degree of overestimation, tends to be common, if not the rule, if the patients in the study used to develop the equation are very dissimilar for your patient population. So if you're taking care of inner city minority population and the tool was made in Framingham, Massachusetts, Odds are that tool is going to have calibration problems in your population. You would be much better using a tool developed in a patient populations similar to your patient population. Well, I find the math a little difficult to understand, and I've done a lot of statistical stuff before. Although it was really well described, I loved the calibration discrimination discussion. Of course, that was a particular hobby of mine for many years. Let's get back to, I'm taking care of patients. What are the dangers and costs of the old equation? What are the clinical implications of continuing to use the old equation? And do you think we're going to be able to convince the people who have written the guidelines to accept this new revised pooled cohort equation as a better method for estimating risk? People will disagree about the importance of the overestimation. That what we can say is if you're following the guidelines very closely, we estimate that almost 12 million more people would be treated with the old equations than with the new. And that's the same whether you use 7.5% as your cutoff or 10%. So that's huge. There's other people that sort of say, you know, it's not that big of a deal. Those are mainly people that think we should be starting statin earlier. And there's a lot of people that think we should be starting at 5%, that you can make a case for that. The real issue is the millions, maybe not 12 million, where the calculation is way off. People like yourself, right? It might be one in 30 people, but that's one in 30 people that we are dramatically misinformed. It's also particularly important, I think, in terms of getting the estimates for black Americans correct. And I think the place where there's no counter argument for using our tool is for getting the estimate for black Americans um, better. Those changes were quite dramatic, and both in terms of under treatment 
for black, particularly black men, as well as over-treatment. So I'm optimistic. We have not received anything but interest and good academic comments from people that were involved in the guidelines. The people that did these guidelines are amongst the best researchers I know. And I think they're going to want some questions answered. There's always a process to go through that is important. But I'm hopeful that fairly soon, I think it would be reasonable within six months for the AHA, ACC committees to revisit this, ask questions, and revise and update their tool in some way. I believe in scientific debate, discussion, post-publication review, but I don't believe in long delays. And so I think we should be able to do this much faster than waiting until the next guidelines come out whenever. This could be done quicker, the implications are big enough, and there's no downside to just replacing the tool. That is completely transparent to clinicians using it. So this doesn't cause any confusion for the clinician. All those statistical things you mentioned, they're invisible to the clinician, and they should be. The clinician just should want to know that this was evaluated by people that know what they're doing, and this is the best estimates we can have, but also know the estimates aren't perfect, and they should feel free to make small adjustments of these numbers based upon their not large ones, but you think this person's risk is probably more like 8% than 10%. That's what clinician knowledge can do. And just to finish, I heard you say this earlier, but I suppose that if you were asked to talk to the guidelines committee, not only would you want them to use the revised guideline, but to set up a plan for every three to five years updating the equations because they may continue to change over time. Yeah, I think so. But I would go even further. I think the future should be locally developed tools. National tools do not make sense, given what we find out. That there is a time that Kaiser Permanente has had their own tools for Kaiser patients for some time now. We are in the final stages of having tools in the VA. You can use tools that were developed and calibrated and validated on veterans. Large health systems have the ability to calibrate their tools to their patient populations. We have the ability to use additional information from the electronic health record and study populations, whether they're from control trials or cohorts, are selective. They are volunteers. The most important thing to the patient is the best estimate of their risk, and we should be able to do that. Not everywhere, but a lot more places. That will require cooperation between insurers and CMS and health systems but we should overcome those. And the reason for that is the risk factors are known by the health systems in their electronic health records. The outcome is completely collected by insurers who knows whether the person had a heart attack or stroke, whether they came to your hospital or another. And we've been working on ways to really set up a system that that would be the next wave. And although we're talking about heart disease, risk prediction is important in other areas too. Tanner Caverly had an article in the previous annals about how important and how much the benefit of lung cancer screening varies the risk. We know that risk is very important in terms of AAA repair. 
lots of places that risk. Cancer risk. We have a head start there with cancer registry. So risk is a fundamental aspect of decision making for patients. You cannot even begin to think about how valuable a treatment is until you have an estimate of how likely the person, person in the clinic room with you, is likely to have bad outcomes if you do not. That's the starting place. If it's very, very low likelihood, it's easy to do more harm than good by us offering an intervention. If it's really high, those are the people we should really be trying to get treatment to because a 20% risk reduction is big if your risk is big. But it's trivial if your risk is one in 10,000. And we need that information to be provided to clinicians better. It's one of the most important things. And we find that we not, and I include myself as a clinician here, we are not good at considering baseline risk in making our decisions. We're too distracted by that unreliable blood pressure measure. We're too distracted by what the LDL cholesterol is. Too distracted by age and realizing that age is an important risk factor, but there are really low risk 65-year-olds and there are really high risk 45-year-olds and that we are not good at thinking about this and decision tools should help give us a nudge in those directions. Well, Rod, thank you so much for having this conversation. I hope this has been valuable to the listeners and I think it's been a very wonderful discussion. Now it's time for Bob's Pearls. This discussion, which was somewhat technical, gave us some very important understandings of estimating risk as a way to decide whether or not to put patients on statins or blood pressure medication or aspirin for cardiovascular disease. One thing that Rod really stressed was that the number itself is not a hard number. Rather, we should modify it with our understanding of other risk factors for the patient. For example, we have a patient who has siblings who all had heart disease in their 40s. We're going to increase that estimate quite a bit. We also take into effect their exercise, whether they have significant CKD, that would be 3B or worse, and mental health issues, especially depression. The other thing that Rod really stressed was the importance of current data in risk prediction. The big difference between this risk predictor and the one published in 2013 is the use of more current data. He points out that there are trends in our society that are actually decreasing atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, and that if we don't take the changes over time into effect, we can easily overestimate any one individual's risk. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast and learn something that will actually help you make decisions about your patients. For more episodes of Annals on Call and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org slash on call. Participant statements on this podcast reflect the views of the participants and not necessarily those of the journal or the American College of Physicians, unless so identified. The information contained in the podcast should never be used as a substitute for clinical judgment.